Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 today on cornerstone connection with pastor gary hamrick he says to king ahaz be careful keep calm and don't be afraid do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's what, that's what God calls the king of Israel of the north and the king of Syria. Two smoldering stubs of firewood. But God says, don't, don't worry, Ahaz. These two guys are just like two sticks that, you know, are just embers now. They're just, you know, all smoke, no fire, no problem. And God adds in verse 7, it will not take place. It will not happen. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Isaiah. Have you ever been faced with such an extreme hardship that you felt crippled as though there was no hope for any relief? Today, Pastor Gary will be reminding you that no matter how big your trials may be, God is much bigger. What the enemy intends for evil in your life, God will turn it for your good. The Bible says, not by might, nor by power, but by spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You can overcome any adversity when you abide in Jesus and rely on His strength and power. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Isaiah chapter 9 as he begins his message Mission Messiah, Jesus is born. In chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jump down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah writes these things, prophesying about Messiah who is to come, which, by the way, of course, was fulfilled in Jesus. There are more than 300 prophecies of the Old Testament that spoke of, that foretold the first coming of Messiah. More than 300. And all of them were fulfilled in and by Jesus. Now, Dr. Peter Stoner, 
who was the professor of science at Westmont College and the professor of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. Before he died in 1980, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And in the book, he mathematically calculated the odds that a single person could possibly fulfill all 300 prophecies as Jesus did. So what he did was he narrowed it down. He said, how about we take just four dozen of them, 48? What would be the odds that a single person could fulfill just 48 of the more than 300 prophecies of the Old Testament related to the first coming of Christ? And he calculated it would be one in 10 to the 157th power. In other words, as Dr. Gary Hamrick says, it ain't no coincidence. <laughs> I don't have a doctorate. I'm, I, I, need, I just, just go with I just wish for it. Just, just go for me. The only degrees I have really is 98.6. But anyway, here we have two of the most incredible prophecies related to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the question becomes, one, what do they tell us? And two, why this particular time, 700 years before the birth of Christ, at this moment in history, why would God choose through Isaiah to reveal these prophecies and to a particular person in general? So we're going to look at those two questions and we're going to answer that in today's study that I've entitled, It Ain't No Coincidence. I'm not really entitling it that. I'm titling it something better than that. Mission Messiah, Jesus is born. In order to appreciate these two great prophecies related to the birth of the Messiah, you need to go and get a little context with me. So please turn back to chapter 7. And uh, we're going we're gonna to start there in chapter 7, then come back to chapter 9. While you're turning there to chapter 7, remember the historical context here as we've been sharing the past couple of weeks. 150 years before Isaiah was born... The nation of Israel went through a civil war. As a result, the nation was divided north and south. The majority of the Jewish people were a part of the northern territory known by the larger name Israel. Samaria was their capital. But there were a few tribes to the south known by one of the smaller tribes, Judah, and the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. Each territory had its own king. There was a king to the north in Israel. There was a king to the south in Judah. And Isaiah the prophet is called by God, 740 B.C., to minister and prophesy and speak to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the king of Judah at this particular time, we read his name there in chapter 7, verse 10, is Ahaz. Ahaz is king of Judah at this particular time. I'll have more to say about him near the end of the Bible study. But for the moment, he's the king, Ahaz, and Isaiah has come here to minister to him because What I didn't read in the first part of chapter 7 tells us this, that the northern kingdom of Israel joined forces with the kingdom of Syria, same Syria today, Damascus as capital, to advance south and to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, the the king of Israel, joined forces with the king of Syria. Together, they come to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ahaz, when he gets wind of this, and the people with him of Judah are are understandably terrified. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 2, it says, They trembled like the trees of the forest being shaken by the wind. So they're, they're completely beside themselves with fear because of this imminent threat. And so God says to Isaiah, the prophet, I want you to go to King Ahaz. I want you to comfort him. I want you to encourage him. I want you to, to, to speak to him Bob Marley style. Okay, you go to him and you, 
you tell him everything gonna be all right, man. Because Isaiah's from Jamaica. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, so, this, so God's saying, you go and you encourage him. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. In fact, look at your Bibles here, chapter 7, verse 4. He says to King Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's what, that's what God calls the king of Israel of the north and the king of Syria. Two smoldering stubs of firewood. God says, don't, don't worry, Ahaz. These two guys are just like two sticks that, you know, are just embers now. They're just, you know, all smoke, no fire, no problem. And God adds in verse 7, it will not take place. It will not happen. All right? Translation, God says, I got this, Ahaz. Don't worry. Be careful. Don't be afraid. Everything's going to be okay. And then God concludes by saying in, at the end of verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In other words, he says to Ahaz, really, Ahaz, I'm all you've got. And if you don't stand firm in your faith about me and what I can do for you, then you won't stand at all. And that's a great verse for us to remember, isn't it? Because there are times we have to remember that sometimes faith in God is all we've got. I mean, when this life becomes unpredictable and people and circumstances become unreliable, sometimes all we have is faith in God. And if you don't stand firm in your faith with him, then we can't stand at all. So God says this to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, and and God just wants to encourage this king not to fear the threats of these kings. But, But God doesn't stop there. And in verse 11, we read it a moment ago, God even tells Ahaz to ask me, God says, ask me for a sign. You, you, want to, you want to know that I'm going to intervene for you, that I'm going to help you, and I'm, I'm going to be powerful on your behalf? Go ahead. Ask me for a sign. This is what God says to him. He invites him. Ask me for a sign. Now, normally, normally it's not right for us to ask God for a sign. So resist that temptation. Okay, I, I knew a lady years ago. Doesn't go the cornerstone. But she said to me one time, Pastor Gary, do you think it's wrong that I try to discern the will of God through a sign by rolling dice? What? She's like, yeah, when, when I'm trying to make a decision, I don't know what, it, what the answer should be. I feel like maybe God can show me a sign through dice, so I'll, like, think of a number, and then I'll roll it, and if that number shows up, then I think the answer's yes. I said, ma'am, I don't think God rolls Vegas style, you know? And but besides, there's a reason why that game is called craps. Do you know what I'm saying to you? Don't, don't roll dice. Pray. Pray. Jesus even said in Matthew 16, verse 4, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Now, in the context of that in Matthew 16, 4, Jesus said that because there were some religious leaders who did not believe in him as Messiah, so they just wanted Jesus to put on a show for them. Why don't you perform some of your miracles, Jesus? And then Jesus says there in Matthew 16, 4, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. So don't test God. However, in this story here, God is actually inviting Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I'll give you one. And Ahaz says in verse 12, it's not, not right for me to put the Lord to the test. I will not ask for a sign. You just want to, you just want to say, oy vey, Ahaz. I mean, I mean, for goodness sakes, God is saying to you, go ahead and ask me, and you won't even ask. Ask, but he doesn't. So Isaiah speaks up here in verses 13 and 14. Isaiah said, hear now 
you house of David, meaning, meaning the royal throne of Jerusalem. So he's talking here to Ahaz in a broad sense. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? In other words, Isaiah's like, Ahaz, you get on my nerves. You try and test me. You're going to do that to God too, really? And then Isaiah adds in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah says to him, fine. You you don't want to ask God for a sign even though he's invited you to ask? You don't want to see the mighty hand of God displayed in your life? Fine. You know what? God's going to show himself strong on your behalf anyway. Yeah, aren't you glad that sometimes when we, in our foolishness, refuse God's help, that he still helps us? Sometimes we don't even know that we're refusing it because we, we, we don't think sometimes to pray, but God still shows up strong. Isaiah says, you know what? Therefore, God himself will give you a sign. And the word you there, the pronoun, God will give you a sign in the Hebrew language is plural. It's plural. Okay, those of you from Philly, you'd read the verse like this. Therefore, the Lord your God will give you a sign. Because what he's about to say here in the rest of verse 14 is not just exclusively to one man, to Ahaz. But this is a promise that is spoken to the plurality of humanity. What I'm about to tell you is a sign for all people, for you plural. And this is what he says, that the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. He says, this is what God is going to do for you. Now, of course, this verse was fulfilled in Christ and the circumstances related to his birth. Now, this is not just me saying it. Matthew in his gospel in chapter 1 quotes from Isaiah 7:14 saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. 700 years later Jesus is born after Isaiah speaks these words. And Jesus fulfills this because Mary was a virgin and God visited her and by the power of his holy spirit he impregnated her that she might give birth to the son of God that God would descend to us and leave the glory of heaven and wrap himself in skin and enter our world through natural birth but by a supernatural conception and thus the miracle of the virgin birth for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given now matthew again tells us this is a fulfillment of isaiah 7:14 when he writes in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, that all these things related to the birth of Jesus fulfilled in Christ. Now, I want to point out to you before we carry on in our study, just by way of passing, because some of you might be familiar with some liberal Bible scholars or theologians that put a, a slant on Isaiah 14. And they, they will tell you that the word virgin in the original Hebrew language is the word alma, which is true. It is. And they will also say that Alma in Hebrew doesn't just mean virgin. It can also mean a young woman who's married. And that is also true. But how do we understand and how do we know for sure that Jesus was actually born of a virgin as in 
a woman who's never been with a man versus a young married woman. Here's how. When Matthew writes his gospel in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, Matthew's a Jew. He understands Hebrew. He knows the Hebrew language. But he writes in first century common language, which is Greek. And when Matthew translates Isaiah 7, 14 into Greek, he uses the word parthenos in the Greek for virgin. And parthenos in the Greek means a woman who has never been with a man to distinguish from just another young woman who might be married. Now, why is this important? Here's why it's important, church. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Why? Because God had to offer a perfect sacrifice as a substitute for us. Here we are, all sinful people, in need of a savior. Well, another sinful person can't save sinful people. You need a perfect sacrifice. You need a perfect faultless savior. So what God did was he came into the world through a natural birth, but a supernatural conception. Every single one of us receives a sin nature from the seed of our fathers. It's handed down to us. Ever since Adam sinned, the sinful nature of mankind is passed from generation to generation. You and I are born into sin. We are conceived in sin. And therefore, we do sin when we are born. It's our sin nature. God bypassed the sin nature of humanity by miraculously impregnating Mary with his own nature so that then the original sin nature was not transferred to Jesus. He would be fully human coming through a natural birth, but fully divine through a natural, a supernatural rather, conception. And thus Jesus is the only one who can be that sinless, perfect sacrifice to die for all of us as sinners. It's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. So Alma, don't, don't listen to the liberal theologians about all that nonsense. Matthew knew it's a virgin here. It's a mirac- miraculous conception. Now, if you look further into chapter 9, because my time's escaping, because I've got to wrap all this up. There's a point here. Don't, don't, don't fade out. There's a point here. Isaiah even then tells us the region of Messiah's ministry. This is fascinating. Chapter 9, verse 1. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Zebulun and Naphtali were tribal allotments of land. And if you look at a map, Zebulun and Naphtali hug the western coast of the Sea of Galilee up in northern Israel, western coast of the Sea of Galilee, and come up above it north. When God allowed the Assyrians, as the rod of his discipline, to correct the northern territory of Israel, the Assyrians came first by attacking the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so God says here, in the past, God humbled them in Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, okay, this is prophetically talking about Christ. In the future, God will show his favor by the Gentile, by the Galilee of the Gentiles and by the way of the sea. That's the rest of that verse. Now, here's what he means. In Isaiah's day and even in Jesus' day, there was a great population of Gentiles living in the region of the Galilee. The Assyrians came, the Romans later would come, so there was a great number of Gentiles, so it was known in those days as the Galilee of the Gentiles. But it's telling us the region of the Galilee. 
And then he gets specific. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, God's favor will come. And, and that speaks of the trade route. There's a trade route still today, but now it's paved. There's a trade route that connects Africa, hugs the coast of the Mediterranean, going north, jogs east, goes to the Sea of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and then over to ancient Mesopotamia. It was called by the way of the sea. Today, when we go to Israel, we stand on that road, and it's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Jesus's ministry occurred in a little town of Capernaum to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee along the way of the sea. Isaiah is saying here that Messiah's ministry will actually be located along this trade route, along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And that's why God will then show grace to Zebulun and Naphtali because that region will be the first to receive his ministry. Now, why did Jesus choose to have Capernaum as as his home base? He's born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. But he moves to Capernaum in the year of his ministry. For three years, he lives there because... In a a time when there's no internet, there's no social media, there's no 24-hour cable news network, what's the way that you can best communicate around the the known world? You situate your life along a major trade route. And that's what Jesus was doing. And Isaiah saw all this. Isaiah speaks of it prophetically. Look further here in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verse 6, where he talks about for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Those important words there, to be born, speaks of Jesus' humanity, born from a woman. But he is given because Jesus did not come into existence when he was born. He has always eternally existed, being God himself. So he was given to the world through this natural birth, but a supernatural conception. And then also at the end of verse 6, it speaks about how the government will be on his shoulders and increase of the government and peace will be no end. He's going to reign on David's throne. This last section primarily refers to the millennial kingdom when Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem after his second coming. But in essence, when you tie all of these things here that Isaiah is saying to us, he's saying to us that the Messiah will be born of a virgin 700 years before Christ. That he is Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, that his ministry will be situated along the Via Maris by the Sea of Galilee, that he is the light of the world, that he will be born but also given, that he will forever rule and reign as the descendant of David, that he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And Isaiah sees this. But now this question, and this is the last question, but don't fade out on me because this is the most important part of all of this. Why would God choose to give this great pronouncement 700 years in advance to this guy, Ahaz? Now, I know that these promises are given really for the plurality of humanity. But God chose in his providence on the timeline of history that on this particular day, Isaiah would be the one to speak these prophecies and direct them toward the king of Judah, Ahaz. Why would he do that? And here's the reason why it's an important question to ask. Let me tell you a little bit about Ahaz. The Bible says he was a wicked king. Open up, nothing jumping. 
The Old Testament book of Isaiah is a powerful text filled with prophecy, history, and the grandeur of your Creator. God uses Isaiah to teach the Israelites about who He is and what He expects from those who call Him Lord. He also warns them against coming consequences of their actions, giving them the opportunity to repent and come back to Him. Isaiah also tells of a coming salvation, the child who would one day die for the sins of every person on earth, the Son of God, Jesus. There's much more to learn from Isaiah, so we hope you'll join us again here on Cornerstone Connection. If you missed any part of today's teaching from Pastor Gary, you can listen again online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We have a mobile app as well, allowing you to take these messages with you on the go. Find the link to download at our website or search for the Cornerstone Chapel in your app store. Do you live in the Leesburg area? If so, we want to meet you. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel for a time of worship, fellowship, and studying the Bible with Pastor Gary. Our services start at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. each Sunday, and child care is available. You'll find all the information you need about the church on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. Still you know, but still you know, you're not.